Welcome to the Love First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you are returning, thank you. Thank you for liking, sharing, and subscribing. Now, if this is your first time, I want you to know what this is all about. This is about catalyzing courageous conversations so that we can love in a revolutionary way. What we want to see happen is the power of the gospel and daily life come together in courageous conversations. So today, what are we going to talk about? Closed or open? Should the nation remain closed or should we open? That's the question for today. Now, when I mentioned that to my wife, she was like, what? She's like, uh, Don, that's like a metaphor, right? We're not really going to talk about that, are we? And I said, oh, absolutely, because that's what's on our mind. We want to know, is, is it safe to reopen? Is it, are we reopening too soon? Are we listening to science? On the other hand, do we stay closed? I mean, like closed indefinitely? What happens to people who have already lost their jobs? What happens to folks who fear that if we stay closed one more week, one more month, that, that they'll lose their jobs and then lose health care, housing, transportation? These are serious questions. Ah, but if you've been a part of the Love First podcast so far, you know that we have declared war on binary formulations. When we approach problems in binary ways, then we inadvertently, we imprison ourselves in binary answers. And most of the time, binary questions and binary answers do not come to usable, beneficial, and optimal solutions. So we're going to approach this a little differently. What I want you to think about is this. When we think about what it would mean to reopen, what are we actually talking about? Well, I, I hear some people say, man, I just want to get back to normal. I mean, I, my life is upended. Our lives are upended. We don't get to visit our loved ones in assisted living and the hospital and nursing care. Um, uh, we haven't been able to do our work. We've had to lay off people from our company. Our children are restless. Uh, some people say we're going crazy, right? So at the end of the day, I, I think I just want things to be normal. Again, I don't think that's wrong in and of itself, I just wonder if normal is the best word. Is normal the best formulation in imagining this problem? So let me illustrate what we're talking about. We're going to look at a biblical story because I think this will help us a little bit. So the people of Israel, under one of their forefathers, Jacob, had actually moved to Egypt. Now, the reason for this was there was a famine. One of Jacob's many sons, Joseph, had, uh, uh, through the treachery of his brothers, had been sold into slavery. Through the sovereignty of God, Joseph had risen to a level of leadership in Egypt and ultimately became in charge of the famine recovery fund, where they were not only to help Egypt, able to help Egyptians, but other surrounding peoples, which included Joseph's family. So the Bible tells us that Joseph's family moved to Egypt. But that fairly quickly turned sour because not long after they had moved there and began to grow and become a larger and larger and larger presence in Egypt, the Egyptians then enslaved them. And the people of Israel then became enslaved uh, listen to this number, for centuries, not a couple generations, 
For centuries they were enslaved. And in this enslavement, everything we know of slavery happened. So the rape, the abuse, the murder, the treachery, even genocide took place. But an opportunity for freedom came about because out of that set of circumstances came Moses' family. Moses is born. Genocide is threatened. His mother puts him, as you know the story, in a little waterproof basket with his sister's watchful eye. Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses in. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household, eventually leaves Egypt, grows into himself as a leader, comes back to Egypt as the liberator of the people of Israel. And as you know the story from the book of Exodus, right? The exit from Egyptian slavery, Moses is their leader. Moses leads them out to uh, to the east, and they come to what is known as the Red Sea. God miraculously parts the sea, and they go across on dry ground. They come into the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness that a difficulty arises, and that is the people are running out of food and water. So now they look to Moses, and Moses is looking to God for provision, provision of water and provision of food. And when that becomes difficult and stressful, and it feels like both water and food are scarce, the people decide that Moses is an unfit leader, so they want to fire Moses. And so in the book of Numbers, if you look at Numbers chapter 14 and verse 4, it says, well, I'll begin in verse 1. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to him, If only we had died in Egypt or in the desert. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So what do they want to do? They want to fire Moses and they want to go back to Egypt. Why? Because in Egypt, they had some things. What did they have? Well, according to Exodus chapter 16 and verse 3, Exodus 16, 3, they remembered their food, their diet. They had vegetables and fruit and meat to eat. But I want you to think about this for a moment. So what they remembered was the familiarity of life in Egypt. They remembered having plenty of food. But let's try to put ourselves back in that situation and imagine that Moses decides to put together a Zoom meeting and a delegation from Israel and a delegation from Egypt, and he gets them all on the Zoom meeting. So Moses organizes this, or maybe Aaron does. Maybe Aaron and Miriam do the organizational part, and they uh, send an email to Pharaoh and say, hey, no hard feelings. We know that, you know, kind of a weird exit. We're sorry for how everything went, but we'd love to talk. Here's the Zoom meeting. Would you mind logging in? And then they say to the people of Israel, hey, you know, coverage out here in the wilderness isn't very good. So we're all going to huddle around one computer and we're going to get on this Zoom meeting. And we're going to have a call. So they get on the call and everybody's on the call and it's a little tense. And finally, they present their case and they say, hey, listen to the Pharaoh we'd like to come back to Egypt. And here's the way we're thinking about it. We want to come back to the food, like that part. We want the food part, but we don't want the slavery part. We want the food part and not the slavery part, to which the Pharaoh of Egypt says, not a chance. <laughs> if you guys are coming back, you are coming back the way you left. You are coming back as an enslaved workforce. Pharaoh says, I've talked to my public works people. I've talked to our military. They're, they are not interested in you coming back just for the food. You got to take everything that came with it, which means the slavery. Well, the people of Israel are like, yeah, well, we don't really want to do that. 
So basically then Moses says, empathetically, if I'm hearing you correctly, you don't actually want things to go back to normal. Because normal had problems. Normal had slavery, like horrible slavery. Normal included genocide. Normal included plunder, rape. Normal included injustice. So we close down the Zoom meeting and we stop and think and say, man, I I don't know. I guess we don't really want to go back to normal. You see, normal in our memory filters itself to where the the things that were familiar that really meant a lot to us, that's what we want to go back to. But like normal, like all of it, I, I don't think we want that. So how do we deal with the fact that we actually don't want everything that preceded COVID-19. So you notice that pollution is down around the planet. Who would vote and say, hey, let's bring pollution back to to horrific levels? People are like, there's got to be a way to come back, but not with all the pollution, right? Some people have noticed that various forms of of human trafficking have dropped off dramatically, not because people were suddenly became moral, but because people were afraid of being infected themselves. But what if we just said, let's go back to normal, but not that. We don't want to go back to that, right? So when we think about going back to normal, our memory says, let's go back to the good I remember and the way I remember it. Well, you see, you do realize that that's more like looking for familiar. Now, I want you to think about this for a few moments. So I'm going to put on my mask. I take it with me everywhere I go. So I've just put on my face mask, right? And I've got my face mask on now. And someone would look at me and say, well, that's not normal. And I would say, you're correct. That's not normal for me. And someone would say, is that familiar? And you'd be like, not for me. That is incredibly unfamiliar. However, in our church family and in our community, we have doctors and nurses. And for them, that's both normal and familiar. So maybe one of the things we learned from the people of Israel is that going back to normal like it really was, isn't actually what we want anyway. And that we have to guard against imagining that the familiar that's actually good could somehow be separated from all of the normal that wasn't so good. So if we keep saying, let's get back to normal, we're ignoring the fact that there were problems with normal. Now, the next thing we have to recognize is that what is familiar for some is not familiar for all. The fact that I'm not used to wearing a mask doesn't mean that no one is. In fact, let's think about open and closed then in this framework. When we say it's time to reopen things right now and someone else says, no, we've got to keep them closed. I want you to think about this you do realize that we never gave our doctors, our hospitals, and our nurses an option. We said to them, oh, no, 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 you have to remain open. We'll pray for you. We're afraid for you. We knew that some of them would be infected and some of them would die, and we knew it. We especially knew it in this country because it had already happened in other countries in both Asia and Europe. We already had the hard facts that by asking hospitals to stay open and doctors and nurses to report for duty, including students in med school and students in nursing programs who had not yet even graduated, and we told them, we expect you to be called up. We reached out to literally thousands of retired doctors 
and we asked them to step back into the situation. And when they agreed, what did the nation do? We applauded their bravery. Why were we so insistent that they stay open? Well, see, because we thought to ourselves, we need them to stay open. They have to stay open in order to beat this pandemic, in order to flatten the curve. These doctors have got to do their job. So let's be aware that we already told some people you had to stay open. On the other hand, have we not told other people you need to stay closed? We have had these tragic outbreaks in nursing homes and assisted living centers. And while some of them immediately, transparently let us see what was happening, and Washington State became the leading edge of, of, of helping us understand how to navigate it, other places tragically hid the death toll, lied about what was going on behind closed doors, and did not follow the appropriate safety measures, and it cost people their lives. And categorically across the board, we have said to them, you were wrong to stay open. So for some people, we told them, you should have never closed. Other people, we said, you should have never been open. Do you now see why the binary approach doesn't work? And think about how imagination worked against us. We thought to ourselves, well, you know, I mean, I understand a place like New York City where people are crammed in like sardines. Well, of course, they would have a problem. But out there in South Dakota, you know, uh, uh, oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, right? And, and, and the place where there's only a few people per square mile. I mean, surely it won't be a problem there until we found out that at Smithfield Foods, where the government had been slow to in, enforce strict safety measures, that over 300 people were infected, and it became one of the nation's largest hotspots. So see, we imagined that rural areas wouldn't be hit, and we were wrong. Just plain wrong. So when we think about how we're imagining this, to just say that the answer is either stay closed or open everything is a false proposal. One of my friends said it this way, don't imagine that for your family, for your getting your food, for going to work, for public transportation, for schools, and for churches, that there would be one protocol, that you just need one protocol. No, he said you would need to develop multiple protocols so that the protocols take into Take, take into account all of the various concerns. So a protocol would be if nurses and doctors actually do need to participate in curbing this pandemic and we knowingly are going to put them or ask them to put themselves in harm's way, then what will be the protocols for that? And if we're asking people to do essential services, which means that for many people, they will be on public transportation and risking on our behalf, will we put in place policies that will provide for them the appropriate health care and the appropriate relief of their finances if they did an essential service socially? We ask them to participate in their job, put themselves at risk, but they have traditionally been in an economic class that did not have the proper economic support if they were to endanger themselves. Would you vote for that policy then? Or do we just want there to be kind of this invisible group of people that stays open because we think they should while we stay closed as long as we think we should? You do realize that there's got to be some hypocrisy floating around in there somewhere. So to open and to close requires not just science, although it's got to be rooted in science. And it requires not just history, although it should be rooted in historical fact and model. It's also got to be based in values. 
What do we value? Do we value wisdom? Do we value empathy? Do we value inclusiveness? You see, let me, let me give you some things that don't work. A positive attitude is not an antidote. A positive attitude is not an antidote to COVID-19. Determination is not a vaccine. We've done it before and we'll do it again. Yeah, well, that's actually not a vaccine. I'm, I'm glad if you're a determined person, that won't save you from COVID-19. Political partisan hype is not protection. Going to whatever political party you, you uh, uh, profess and getting all hyped up and all of that stuff, that's actually zero protection. None. And finally, cable news is not research. It's not research. The fact that you watch the news and someone presented news that has a sponsor and that the sponsor pays millions of dollars for people to say things that draw a certain clientele into that newscast so that they can put advertisements out there so that people will buy their products, that's not research, okay? So a positive attitude is not an antidote. Determination is not a vaccine. Political partisan hype is not protection. And cable news is not research. So what do we do? Well, first of all, let's talk about the importance of imagining protocols where our values can be supported, even though our sense of normalcy is still upset. Now, People have noticed that I've not been wearing my wedding ring. I've actually had a few people email me the last several podcasts and say, where's your wedding ring? Well, these are people that have known me a long time. Well, my wedding ring is right here. Okay, so let me tell you about this. So, um, August 14th, 1982, the most amazing journey was launched in marriage when my wife, Susan, shortly after two o'clock in the afternoon, slipped a wedding ring on my finger. And so now for nearly 38 years, that wedding ring has represented the vows and commitment and love that we've poured into our relationship all of these years. Well, so Don, what, what, what's going on? Are, are you and Susan having problems? Wait, what's happened to your marriage? You know, are you less committed? No. Four weeks ago, when this crazy thing started, I was trimming trees and I got poison ivy. And I'm highly susceptible to poison ivy. It broke out all over my body. And any of you that are susceptible to this, you're already ahead of me. What happens is if I wear this wedding ring right here, it blisters up all around underneath it. The blisters then crack and my body gets reinfected. And so what my wife and I realized is as beautiful as this ring is and everything it represents, it doesn't mean one thing about our commitment or our marriage that I'm not wearing this thing until another outbreak is for sure not going to happen. You get where I'm coming from on this? If I put this wedding ring on too soon, then I will encounter another outbreak because my system is still compromised. Now, do you want to know what that means? When there's a full outbreak of poison ivy, it means I have to go on medicines, which means I've got to reach out to my doctor, which means I've got to tax the medical system, which needs to be attending to people that have other problems, which means I've got to sleep in another room of our house and I've got to be covered in medicines. Do you understand that it actually not only is not good for me, it's not good for my marriage, and it's not good for my community for me to put this ring back on too soon. But you do understand that that doesn't say anything about our commitment or our love. It just means that under these circumstances, there's a different protocol. 
Does it feel unfamiliar? Yes. And do I miss wearing my wedding ring? Yes. And do I look forward to wearing it again? Yes. I just know that there's a right time to make that decision, and I've got to be flexible and thoughtful about the timing. You might know this story, but I want to remind you of something that happened in the 1918-1919 pandemic. Now, I'm going to brag a little bit on the city of Atlanta. During that epidemic, the city of Atlanta responded very well overall, very well overall. We had the fourth lowest death rate of any city in the nation, and uh, among large cities, we were either the lowest or the second lowest. And that's because the city responded well. But do you realize that even in a city that responded very well, we opened up because there was so much pressure to reopen, and we had a second wave of the pandemic that we then had to deal with, which meant a uh, re-addressing of protocols, another round of closures until we could handle that. So even in a city that did extremely well, there was some challenges around when to reopen, how to reopen, did we jump the gun because we had another wave. You can read about this in influenzaarchive.org. You can do that. But in that archive, you're going to read another story about Philadelphia. Philadelphia had an outbreak. And Philadelphia responded briefly to the outbreak. But they had had a parade planned, a really important parade to support the war effort. And that parade had been planned. And so just seven days after those first cases were acknowledged, and the, the world was already embroiled in the pandemic. Philadelphia decided to have the parade anyway. People warned them against it. Doctors warned them against it. Uh, the medical community in general warned them against it, but they had the parade anyway. In fact, uh, the, the famous band leader, Philip Sousa, uh, uh, finished off with, with the March of the King. Hmm. Well, here's what happened. That was on September 28, 1918. Within 72 hours, all 31 hospitals in Philadelphia were overflowing. Within one week, by October 5th, 2,600 people were dead. One week later, that number had risen to 4,500. The bodies were stacked up. Morgues could not keep up. Of all things, the price of caskets skyrocketed. Why did this happen? Well, see, because people imagined it would go one way and refused to submit themselves to the reality. Oh, immediately they closed the city. They had to shut down everything, schools, churches, businesses, It was a disaster. And here's something you need to know. Other than Pittsburgh, who had the highest death rate, Philadelphia had the second highest death rate of any city in the nation. You see, it really does matter when we think about closed or open and how will we navigate this? Well, maybe a way to close our time together today is to think about it like this. How do I approach these questions understanding this? That familiar is not always optimal. What is familiar to me is not always optimal. Familiar is not always inclusive. What is familiar to one person is not always familiar to another person or even best for that person. Number three, familiar is not always well-researched. Oftentimes, we let our imagination or our passion or our rhetoric get in the way of genuine wisdom. And finally, familiar is not comparable. 
You see, what's going to happen is some people are going to feel comfortable going back to public transportation when other people are not comfortable yet. Some people will feel comfortable with their children returning to schools when other people will not. One of my neighbors who's in an international company said that in a Zoom meeting worldwide, the people in London remarked, we won't be able to go back to our offices anytime soon because we'll have to ride public transportation because of ecological requirements around the city of London, climate requirements, and we're not going to feel comfortable on public transportation. So see, what's familiar isn't comparable. One church in one place might feel comfortable returning to worshiping together, everyone together at a certain time, That doesn't mean that's right for everyone else, or does it mean they're even doing the right thing themselves? I want you to listen carefully what the Apostle Paul says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, Paul has strong words. He says this, those who compare themselves with others are fools. It's foolish to operate off of comparison. Well, our business is going back in, so so should yours. Are they even the same business? Well, our, our assisted living center for my mom or my dad or your mom or your dad, they opened up, so should yours. Are the circumstances the same? You should be wearing your wedding ring, Don. I do. Well, do you have poison ivy? You see, comparison doesn't lead to wise answers. But what could lead to some wise answers? Well, why don't we close with what my friend Joe Calavito calls self-reflection questions. I've got a list of four that I want us to close with. First, what have you done during COVID-19 that you're proud of? What's something that you've done during this pandemic that you're proud of? Number two, what have I done during, what have I done without, excuse me, what have I done without during COVID-19 that makes the world better? What have I done without that makes the world a better place? What have I been willing to let go of that now I realize this is better for the climate, this is better for the economy, this is better for my family, this is better for my church, This is better for my company. What have you done without that you realize makes the world better? Number three, what have I learned that I need that I'm willing to pursue? What have I learned that I need during this COVID-19 pandemic that I now realize I need to pursue? Some of my friends have shared with me that they had put off counseling And while for some families, being close together was really a joy, for others it exposed some cracks and some some things that needed to be addressed all along. A couple of my families said, we're already pursuing counseling. We've already started online. Some people have said, I'm going to pursue some more training and some more certifications in my work. Some people have said, we've been walking the whole time during this, and we're going to pursue better health. So what have you learned that you need that you're willing to pursue? And finally, how will you make helping others your new normal? How will you make helping others your new normal starting today? So earlier in the podcast, I mentioned how unfamiliar and uncomfortable wearing this face mask is. But we then thought about, well, what about our doctors and nurses? It's not unfamiliar to them. And it was a part of their life daily prior to COVID-19. It will be a part of their life after this pandemic is arrested to a point where we can resume some form of our daily activities. But for them, It wasn't unfamiliar, nor will it be unfamiliar in the future. All that tells us is is that there are many people where the details of their life are hidden from our view. We don't really think about it very much, right? 
And when someone reminds us, we're like, oh, yeah, well, that makes total sense. Well, I would suggest that there might be people hidden from our view for other reasons. And sometimes it has to do with the systems, the social systems of our life. That oftentimes there are peoples that just go unnoticed. One of the great tragedies of the history of our nation is the systemic injustice against indigenous people. One of those people groups is the Navajo. And I don't know if you noticed this last week, but among the Navajo people, there are more COVID-19 cases than 13 of the 50 states. This This troubles us deeply. There were so many people that were just like, oh my goodness. And I heard people even say, I didn't even think of that. And that's what I'm talking about. People who are systemically pushed out to the margins, outside of our view. But that's not what we're about here at Love First. We're about inclusion, and we're about bringing those voices to the table. It has been our astounding honor for the last many years to partner with a beautiful church family in Tuba City, Arizona, that ministers among the Navajo people. One of those families is the Key family, and today we are very excited to welcome Eric Key, a friend and a pastor of that church, to join us for a Love First conversation about what it means to pastor, not just among the Navajo Navajo people, but to pastor during COVID-19. So please welcome with me, Eric Key. All right. Thank you, Don. Um, So my name is Eric Key. Um, I'm a full-blooded Navajo from Tuba City, Arizona. Uh, We're located on the western, most western side of the Navajo Reservation. And um, we, I was born, uh, raised, and graduated high school from Tuba City and and left and vowed never to return uh, because of the opportunities that was off the reservation. And Mm -hmm. and I think the, you know, the big guy upstairs was like, nope. You, you got to go back, you know, you have to help your people. You, yes. you got to take my word back, uh, to, uh, to the people there in Tuba city. And so we moved back, uh, my wife and I, uh, uh, Tracy, uh, I met her in, uh, Florence, Italy when I was doing a mission work there. And, um, she was working for Harding university as an assistant director. And wow. so we, we met there and you know, how, how can you not fall in love in Italy? <laughs> but, uh, we moved back in um, in 2014, and so this is uh, year number seven for us uh, working as missionaries here in Tuba City. Um, we have uh, three wonderful kids, Caden, uh, Silas, and, and little Ava, and um, they kind of help us with uh, the work, and, and um, we... Uh, we love what we do. We're going to do it as long as God is going to allow us. And, and, um, we're going to, we're just doing what we can. And, uh, especially in, in, in this epidemic and what's going on now. Yeah. Um, so when we came back to Tuba city, um, we overtook the work with, um, when, uh, Paul G, the previous minister, he was here 28 years and he passed away, uh, suddenly, uh, he ended up getting sick and, and, and he passed away May 29th, uh, 2013. And, and then we came and took over the work and, uh, late February of 2014. So it's, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting, uh, uh, adventure that God has put us in and, and helped us, uh, connect and, and build and, and, relationships, uh, wonderful relationships with churches all around the country, just like North Atlanta. You bet. How would you describe so far how people are experiencing the coronavirus? What are you seeing and what are you hearing? Um, So what we see on the reservation, um, there are roughly about 330,000 Mm. uh, Navajos living on the reservation. And, uh, we're, I want to say that the reservation is probably 10 to 15 years behind the United Mm. States. Uh, 30% 
of the population still uh, doesn't have running water or electricity. Oh electricity. Mm-hmm. And when we're in an epidemic where washing your hands, you know, 20, 50 times a day is so important, you know, they, we, we as, a, as in a people can't do it all the time, right. you know? Right. Um, and so um, hygiene is very, uh, is, is hard to, to keep up, you know? Yes. Um, the hospital here in Tuba City, um, Tuba City is the largest community on the reservation with the population of just over 9,000. Yeah. And um, we have, um, it's already understaffed um, with nurses and doctors. And, and so there, there's a high number of, of the disease just infecting people. One, because of uh, information. Uh, yeah. Information is very... Um, it doesn't travel fast here, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of, uh, people in the outline, uh, of the towns, they, they don't get a lot of the information, you know, and so our president, President Nez, um, who's doing a very, very wonderful job, by yeah. the way, is, yeah. has, uh, invoked a, a weekend curfew, mm. uh, where we have a mandatory shelter in place from Friday all the way through Monday yeah. to, you know, to kind of slow it down. And then we have an evening curfew starting from 8, 8, 8 p.m. through 5 a.m. So once 8 p.m. comes around, you're not allowed to, to leave your home. Wow. Um, so uh, with all of that said, you know, uh, a lot of people have uh, a lot of natives here on the on the res have kind of taken it lightly until uh, the you know, the, the law enforcement had to step in and, and, you know, they're giving out thousand dollar fines or 30 days in jail. And so it's, it's pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that I've been following your president. I've been following some of his updates and how he's approaching it. And I I've been impressed as well. Uh, one of my friends recently gave me a great metaphor. She said, uh, we're not all in the same boat, but we are all in the same storm. Mm-hmm. And so we recognize that what's going on in one person's boat can be similar to another, but not identical. So what is a day like for you, like today, and how has it changed since all of this started? Um, I want to say that we, as in my family, have been busier, busier than, than what we <laughs> normally are doing. Um, uh, for a number of things, not, you know, I, I my daily routine is I, I wake up most of the time, 530 in the morning, I get my workout in and do my Bible study and yep. start my day out that way. And then, and then we start our work here on the res, um, whether it's on the computer, or making phone calls to mm-hmm. to some of our members. Um, but because of this epidemic, because of, of, of so many people are affected, um, our church members are, have had family who have mm. passed away. Um, we, we have two families here on the reservation that attend our church who have had a mother, both of them, uh, a mother and a daughter passing away, oh multiple my. family members. Oh my. Um, whether it's an aunt or, or niece or, or a mother and a daughter, a mother and, you know, sister, yeah. but we've been, you know, counseling, uh, yes. them, talking yes. with them, giving them as much encouragement as possible. Um, we've been delivering, uh, uh cleaning supplies, mm-hmm. uh, Clorox wipes, you know, uh, Lysol yes. spray. We've been delivering that to our, to our elderly and, and church members who are That's afraid great. of going out. Um, we just recently bought a uh, 225 gallon water tank and we plan to start um, delivering water to some of our outlining uh, residents and, and church members outside of the outside of town. And so we're going to, we're going to be doing that. So just that alone, you know, we've, we've added a lot to our plate. Uh, We've been contacted actually by the hospital um, to help, uh, help counsel and, and help uh, give spiritual support to a lot of, a lot of the, the families, a lot of the community members yes. who don't belong to the city church Christ, but who yes. are just 
community members who are looking and questioning their faith and, and need prayer and need uh, counseling. You know, a lot of them are, are, are losing their families also, yes. you know, and, and it's a scary time because uh, family is so important. Family is value. The yes. value of family is very high here on the reservation as, as well as our elders. Mm. And so uh, when we start losing that, we start losing our, our core, our culture, our, yes. our language, you know, and, and, it's it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing when you have a First Nation people uh, losing these core values. Mm. Let's lean into that a little bit. Okay, so uh, as you and I were uh, talking earlier in the week, you gave me this little snapshot. And so I want to share it with our listeners. You mentioned that there's some really important cultural components around death that people are not able to practice. Um. So when um, when somebody when a family loses a family member, um, there's usually a four day um, grieving process that that the family gets together and they meet and they they honor that person. Yeah. And and after after the the four meetings, you you put the person away and you really that's the end of it. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to talk about them again. Um, but because of that time that we don't have to gather. And, and when I talk family wise, um, here, here's a little bit of difference between mainstream America and, and the Navajo culture is our wealth isn't, isn't based on materialistic yeah. uh, possessions. <clears throat> our wealth is based on how big your family is. Mm. And so um, like my grandfather and my grandmother on my mom's side, they had um, 14 kids, so he was considered very wealthy. <laughs> so I have, I have, a, I have a 53 first cousins alone. No way. <laughs> but going back to what we were just talking about, about um, the, the families that have to come together to, to, to honor that person yeah. that they're putting away, um, and, and giving them uh, the proper send off, you know, we're not allowed to, to meet, uh, especially in groups, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, social distancing is, is across the nation. And, yeah. and when you have your core value of a family, um, you have, you're trying to honor somebody who's passed away and, and you're trying to, to do it in a way that's been done for thousands of years, you know, it, it, kind of puts a chink in the chain, you know? Yes. Um, yes. So with, with the, uh, with the, uh, the funerals, you know, it's, there are so many people that are getting sick, not only getting sick, but the, 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 the rate that people are passing away on the res. I'm sorry. When I say res, I mean, I'm, I'm just shortening yep. reservation. Yep. Um, for those of you out there to, that, <laughs> I'm going to catch up. Um, yeah. For so many people that are passing away on the res, our our local mortuary is is overwhelmed. Yes. You know, we have a a guy who who comes to church here every now and then. He's he's part of a another church. He helps out, but uh, he said he's been working nonstop um, mm-hmm. picking up uh, bodies, and he's been working nonstop for five and a half, six weeks straight. Oh, that just breaks and, my heart. Um, and death among the Navajo people, like we're, we're, we're not allowed to be around uh, uh, people who have passed on. Yeah. Um, and part of that is, is a fear of, of that person who, have, who has passed on uh, won't leave, like they'll want to stay with the family. Mm. And so, you know, yeah. you, we, you have to put that that distance between you and that person. And so when you have uh, a mortuary who's an, uh, an, a mortician and the person who picks up the body, when they're working 24 seven and, and they're trying to, you know, basically keep up with the amount of death that's happening, it's, it's, um, I don't know. It, it, it's bad. It's, it's overwhelming, no isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think what you're outlining here that's so important for all me, but for all of us to hear, is that it's not just like one thing that happens. 
a person dies, people grieve and move on. We're talking about mm-hmm. a wave of illness and a wave of deaths. I heard one person say it like this. They said, it's a little bit like being at the ocean and you know the normal waves are coming, but if you turn around and you face away from the ocean, that huge wave you're not expecting is just going to knock you to your, you know, to the floor of the, of the ocean. And I think what we have had trouble catching on to is that this is more like a tsunami. This is not just a casual wave coming in, but it's hitting communities more like a, a tsunami. One of the reasons that the reservation is, is getting hit so hard is, is the underlying health issues that we have as, as a nation. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not a healthy people. Um, I want to say pre-Columbus, you know, we as Navajo people were considered hunter-gatherers. So we have a lot of obesity. We have, I want to say, uh, a super, super high um, percentage of of our people are diabetic. Um, I work out five five times a week at least, you know, and and I'm I'm diabetic type two. Look at that. Look at that. And... um, and you're working out regularly and eating healthy, and you are still yeah, type two diabetic. I try to. Yep. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I'm still diabetic, and yes. and 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 a lot of our people have uh, heart problems, mm. and so when we get attacked by a virus like this, you know, our mortality rate is is going to jump yes. um, 20, 30 percent higher than than the rest of the U.S. Yes. See, this is such an important dialogue that we're having. Because a lot of times, Eric, the conversations I'm in, people imagine that the impact of colonization and the impact of the displacement of peoples, right? They imagine that that impact is like old news. You know, it's something you read about in history only if you're an advanced history major, right? Rather than recognizing that that impact on a people has like instant present day ramifications that actually can make people vulnerable. The reason I acknowledge that and bring that up is because um, when people talk about pre-existing conditions, what they almost always think about is individual. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking about pre-existing conditions the way you described it, like generational of impact by another people group invading your, you know, your country, your, your place, your residence, and then impacting that in such a variety of ways. And so we have this fundamental imagination that it's a single generation and that it's kind of an individual problem versus more of something that's woven into the fabric of how people movements, you know, met each other and impacted each other in uh, in this way. So I really appreciate the way that you brought that dialogue uh, to the surface today. That's so, so helpful. And my hope is that all of our listeners will be like, huh, I, I need to think about that. I need to process that. I need to grow in my understanding of how the decisions I'm making right now are impacting the people um, around me. So I think that's, that's really, really vital. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about ways that you have been able to serve some folks because of this uh, in a new way. Um, so us serving in, in, in a new way, uh, it's, um, I think that the, 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 the internet has has really helped us out a lot. Also, um, I know we joked about this earlier that that when we got off our call is that man we should have uh, invested in Zoom before this epidemic. You know, we we all could have been uh, uh, gajillionaires. You know, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but Zoom um, has really allowed us to um, um, hold church service on Sundays. Yes, um, and in fact, we have as many people calling in. Uh, on our Zoom calls, uh, just as much as we had um, um, in person, wow. and wow. and the neat thing about about Zoom is that 
a lot of our members who have left the reservation to seek, you know, employment, maybe down mm-hmm. in Phoenix or, or off the reservation somewhere, we're reconnecting with a lot of these people and the, and they're, they're, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're ministering to them. That's beautiful. And so that's, that's such a good feeling for, for us because um, we don't get to see them every, every weekend, you know, I mean, we get the, we get the calls from them or we get prayer requests, but it, it's nice that we're able to uh, reconnect with them. Um, we have had a, um, uh, a higher demand for, for delivering food, yeah. Um, yeah. non-perishable items. Um, and, you know, with, with what we just talked about with all of these uh, high number of underlying um, health issues among, among our people, you know, we, have uh, we have a lot of uh, elderly in our church that don't want to leave home. You bet. You know, so we've you know we've been delivering food, cleaning supplies, you know, um, wood, and yes. um, and and we're going to start delivering um, some water to some of the some of the elderly who live outside of town also. And so those are those are new areas that we're we're going to be staying busy with and and. Um, on top of that, you know, trying to be a dad, a husband, you know, yeah. and, and my, my daily routine going, um, here on, on the church property is, is, uh, at times overwhelming, but it's, you know, God's, God's blessed us with, uh, with a lot of work. You know, we're, yeah. we've been fortunate not to just be sitting around twiddling our thumbs and, and <laughs> Netflix binging, you know, we we're we're pretty busy. Would you do us a favor and would you just share maybe a personal story about how you have seen God at work in you and through you. Um, so God, uh, I want to say, first of all, is, is good. Amen. Um, he has blessed my life mm. so much. Um, I thank him so many times just for the life he's given me, uh, for the family he's blessed me to grow up in, first of mm-hmm. all, my mom, my dad, mm-hmm. uh, my brothers and sisters, uh, just the, the the place I was born in, the country I was born in, yeah. uh, the nation I was born into, um, both the United States and, and the Navajo Nation, you know, um, and um, God is God has really blessed my life. I'm, I'm thinking about just every opportunity that was that was given to me was was definitely uh, God. Yes. You know, I didn't. I wasn't born into the wealthiest of families, but you know, we we always had food on the table. My yeah. um, my education. <clears throat> I had no plans of furthering my education, but I, I showed up at at. Harding University the weekend before school started and dropping off my friend and I ended up staying and, and getting, you know, my bachelor's degree wow. from there. And, wow. and, um, I had no intentions of doing anything else afterwards. And, and the next thing I know I'm in Florence, Italy ministering to Italians who yes. love, love, uh, Navajo people, mm-hmm. you know, they love American Indians there. Yes. And so, ministering to Italians was very easy for wow. me because of who I am. Wow. Um, moving back, I, I, you know, I had no intentions of continuing uh, ministry, but I was asked to be the youth minister, you know? And so mm. I, I built a youth group from like five kids to like 25 kids when I was youth minister here at Tuba City Church of Christ. Come and, on. And, and, and then I had no intentions of doing anything else, but, but God is like, nope, not done with it yet. That's you right. know, that's right. Uh, stop. You know, I was working at Walmart, um, distribution in, in Arkansas and, and had a very good job there and, mm-hmm. uh, 401k and, and yeah. great retirement, great health benefits and, um, great salary. And, and then, you know, God said, I'm moving you back to the res and wow. I'm going to cut your salary and, <laughs> by two thirds and not give you any, uh, <laughs> retirement or anything like that. But Hey, guess what? You're going to be happy. And Amen. You know, here we are. And you know, we're, we're, uh, my marriage is happy. My, yes. my relationship with my kids is, is good. My relationship wow. with my mom and dad are, are wonderful. My yes. relationship with my brothers and sisters are, are great. And, and yes. I'm 
healthier now than, than I was, uh, mm. physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, you know, God has just really blessed me in that area. Yes. And, um, and, and in return, I'm, I'm just doing the best I can as long as I can, as long as, uh, he allows me to, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's kind of my story. And, and that's what I'm doing. So on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you on behalf of our youth ministry and so many of our people here that you know personally that love you like crazy and love your family. I just want to say thank you for joining us. And uh, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for the Love First podcast. And uh, uh, as you go on about your day, just know that there's people all over the world, all over the nation, especially here in Atlanta, that love you and are, are with you. Thank you, Don. God bless you, too. Thank you. We appreciate everything you're doing for us and, and the friendship that you've uh, reached out with. And, and we, uh, we pray for you and your family often. God bless you guys. Thank you. All right. Take care and have a great day. Love first, I-